Well, Father, we're, we're grateful for your goodness, your kindness to us, Lord. And uh, we thank you that you've uh, just walked with us through this time. So many people sick, uh, so many people anxious about so many things. And um, Lord, we do pray for Joe. And we pray that you minister to his body and you give him strength. Pray that the, all of the treatments that the, the doctors administer would be wise and beneficial to his body. Lord, we pray that you would uh, bring him home to his family quickly and uh, just watch after him. And Lord, I don't know what level of consciousness he has, but Lord, uh, by your spirit, I pray that you would fellowship with him and that uh, deep inside of him, he would uh, be aware of it and, and enjoying his time with you, Lord. Be with his family. Grant them your grace. Lord, continue to be with Brian and uh, Bob's dad. Just see them through to recover, we pray. And Lord, also thinking of, of uh, Jeff Simons, who has recently gotten out of the hospital and uh, is also just struggling. And pray that you'd encourage his heart, bless him. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with us tonight as we continue through the Psalms and that you would encourage us. Lord, as David experienced so much in his life, um, we need to learn to trust you as he did. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, go ahead and be seated. So tonight we're going to... What's that? Oh yeah, I got to read the text. Get back up. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm so used to praying and then having everybody sit down. So let me read the text to you. Psalm 13. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. David says, uh, well, it's, it, it begins, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. All right, go ahead and be seated. Some of you are expecting me to pray. I saw that creatures of habit, routine. So as I was saying, we are going to talk about our feelings tonight. Uh, probably not as you would if you'd gone to a psychotherapist. Um, I wouldn't make a good psychotherapist. Um, but I think it's about time we talk about our feelings a little bit. Because David certainly does, doesn't he? And it may be that um, we may feel ashamed of uh, confessing the way we feel. Um, we may have been in circles of, of Christians where sharing feelings like this uh, would be unacceptable. And, uh, but David uh, could do it, did it, did it often. And so I want to look at that and consider that tonight as um, we get into this psalm. And I know that there's many repeating themes uh, in, the, in the psalms by David, a lot of um, uh, similar experiences, or him writing potentially about the same experience a couple times. Uh, if, I imagine that if I had endured some of the things that David endured, I may have written about it a few times. If I was a writer, uh, not being a writer, I probably would have talked about it to others a lot. Um, yeah. So to begin with, just real quick, there is an interesting um, kind of flow to the chapter there's three stanzas in the psalm. 
at least that's how it, it comes to us in the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew Bible. The first stanza has five lines, verses one and two. The second has four lines, verse three and four. And the last stanza has three lines. That's verse five and six. So five, four, and three. And many Bible teachers, um, they see kind of an interesting progression uh, from panic and despair uh, that moves to petition and prayer until it resolves in kind of calm and praise. Um, so we would say despair, prayer, and praise. Uh, how many guys have heard of, um, and I don't even know how to say the, the second guy's name, even though I've been reading his, his material for 20 years. He's dead, so I didn't get to ask him. Uh, they, they wrote, well, Kiel uh, basically wrote the commentary, but he utilizes his companion's stuff, and his name is uh, Delitz or something like, what's that? Close enough, yeah. Well, in actual, actually separate commentaries, they both mention something about this verse that is interesting. Uh, Kiel says, Though it rage without as much as ever, peace reigns in the depth of his heart. Speaking of the last two, two uh, lines there. Uh, in other words, though David's circumstances have not changed, something about David has changed as you read through the flow of this. His, uh, his buddy, DeLitz, says, This song, as it were, casts up constantly lessening waves until it becomes still as the sea when smooth as a mirror. And the only motion discernible at last is that of the joyous ripple of calm repose. The psalm goes from panic to prayer to praise. Very interesting. Let's look at verse 1 again uh, and just try to feel David because we're going to talk about feelings. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, that is, in myself, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? So four times, uh, David cries out to the Lord, How long? Okay, now, the reason for his cry is rooted in the last line in verse 2, where David laments this advantage. Uh, whoever his enemy is, he's lamenting the advantage that this, this person has over him. And his enemy has maintained this advantage over David for some time. Uh, this is not a new thing, because David keeps saying, how long, how long this has been going on for some time. And despair uh, is starting to set in. Now, if David is referring to that time when he was a fugitive, that is running from Saul, these circumstances were going on for years and years, years and years. Now, imagine being an enemy of the state for years, for years, hiding in the wilderness, in caves, being hunted like a wild animal. Okay, David knew the whole time that Saul wasn't interested in arresting him, giving him a fair trial, and then uh, at worst uh, putting him in prison. He intended to kill David. Now during those years, uh, David wasn't just on the run. He's not just fleeing from Saul. He was having to find food. He was having to find shelter, clothing, equipment. Um, he had to evade people that would turn him in. Could you imagine all of those uh, plates, as it were, you know, he's having to worry about all those things, 
to deliver his own life, to watch out for spies, to make sure he gets his next meal, to make sure he has supplies, clothing, all that stuff. Imagine the kind of anxiety that you would have uh, through all of that. It's crazy. How exhausting would it be? And I, I would assume that if David had not been a shepherd boy growing up, he would not have been able to survive in the wilderness. Okay? That training uh, out there paid off. So because of his, his enemy-induced uh, suffering from which David was, couldn't seem to find any relief, he expresses not just feelings of despair and desperation, but he says, essentially, abandonment. Now, it's not the... It's, it's actually mingled in his experience. He doesn't say it here, but here it's, it's not the pain of being abandoned by family and friends, though that happened. David feels abandoned by God. What a horrifying feeling to be in all of that and to think that God himself has forsaken you. He said, oh Lord, how long will you forget me forever, forever? How long will you hide your face from me, feeling forsaken Now, that feeling is probably not as uncommon as we think, but it's, I don't think it's typically what, you know, spiritual people want to confess. I don't think so. To say that God has abandoned you has an air of blasphemy to it, doesn't it? He's abandoned me. And it feels blasphemous because in the back of our mind, we know that God has promised numerous times in the scriptures that he would never leave us nor forsake us as he said to Joshua. And he says to Isaiah, and you've probably seen this in a card or something like that. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. Is that how David's feeling right now? He's not feeling it, okay? He's not feeling at this moment the deliverance of God. He's being overwhelmed. He feels like he's being scorched. Jesus would later say, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age, Matthew 28. So it it sounds so wrong to say that God has done something he promised that he would never do, doesn't it? I think it does. And the statement sounds wrong because it is. It's incorrect. God is not and he would never forsake his people. But is it wrong to express how you feel in such desperate circumstances? I think that's an important question uh, for us to answer um, because I think people are reluctant to speak that way. Um, I think it's important to point out for David that he isn't stating the facts necessarily. He's expressing how he feels. This is how, this is how things appear to him. Okay? When he cries out, there's no answer, so he feels forsaken. Okay? When he looks to God, God seems to Uh, be turned away so he feels ignored. When he seeks God's counsel, there's no answer, so he turns to his own thoughts, which he says has troubled me even more. Okay, when God doesn't rescue David, when David thinks it would be timely, he feels vulnerable. He feels alone. So is it wrong to tell God how we feel? Is it wrong? Some would say yes. I've heard people say yes. And I think that people say yes by false piety, uh, or ignorance, or lack of experience. Okay, I think there's some things that play into that. But because of David's example, and also the example of the prophets, I believe strongly that it's the Holy Spirit's intent for us to find a psalm like this 
that matches our circumstances in order to teach us how to express ourselves when we feel abandoned, when, when we feel ignored or troubled in our thoughts. How many of you guys have felt troubled in your thoughts? How many of you experienced that your own thoughts aren't that helpful? <laughs> I found that I can get more wound up in my own thoughts. And if I was prone to anxiety, I might just pass out. Okay? I've seen people pass out from anxiety before. It's a funny story, kind of. It's a funny story now. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not reality. It's not true that God has forsaken us. We're not really alone. And I would say, yes, what we're feeling is a degree of unbelief. And we have some a level of deficiency in our theology. But things are difficult. They can be. We can be afraid. We do feel alone. That part is true. And I think that David is just showing us that our struggle should go before the Lord in all transparency, being honest. Okay? So right now, um, I, I've probably mentioned this before, but there was a, uh, a month there, I think, where I was meeting with numerous people a week, talking to tons of people on the phone, just about all the stuff that's going on and people seeking counsel, people seeking prayer, mandates because of mandates and things. Right now, people are losing their jobs. Uh, they're losing their retirement. They have no other source of income, uh, nothing to cover the mortgage or their other necessities. Their faith and their understanding of God is being challenged, and they feel a certain way. They feel a certain way. People are feeling powerless. You know, their employer is demanding they do something they cannot do in good conscience, and they really have no say. And they feel trapped because in order to keep their employment, they have to compromise their convictions. And if they, re if they refuse to compromise, they cannot provide for their families. Those people feel something. And if they do lose their job and can't find other employment, they're going to feel something as their savings run out. Yeah, if they had savings... They're going to feel something when they can't get a job. Christians often say, it's not about the way we feel. It's about what is true. Completely unhelpful in those circumstances. Okay? I don't think that David would say that without some serious qualifications. Now, I think there's a place for it. I do. I do. But when people are struggling with life-altering circumstances, there are a number of things that are true. God is true. God does care. God is faithful. But it may also be true that my family went without a meal last night. That's true. Could be. The mortgage didn't get paid. I lost my job. My husband has cancer. My baby died. Those all create strong feelings. And those feelings are real. And those feelings are true. And I believe that God wants us to bring these truths to him. And David is a great example of that. I don't think he's whining. I think it's some venting. You know, I think he's, he's just really getting it out there. But I don't think he's whining. It's too real. It's too real to be whining. Yeah. But David is also a good example of not getting stuck on the truths of his feelings. Yeah. Pain and suffering are real, but they're not all that, it, that there is. And so David transitions from sharing his struggles with God to then making requests of God. He says, consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes. Let me just say real quick. If he believed that he was completely abandoned, why would he keep talking? 
So he does keep talking. He says, consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. So three requests. Okay, he wants God to consider his plight. He wants God to hear. Now, in the scriptures, you often uh, see the word hear, but it doesn't mean just listen. It means to heed. It means to heed. How many of you guys say that to your children? You're not hearing me. Oh, yes, they did. They're not obeying you. Okay, they're not, they're not honoring your demands. Well, David's not demanding, but he's pleading with God to, to heed his petition. And then he says to enlighten his eyes, whatever that means, we'll look at that. So he's no longer complaining to God about his plight. David is now petitioning for some relief, some, some rescue from what he believes. Now notice in the text, what he believes is imminent. It's imminent. Okay? He says, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lord, I need you to act now. If you're going to act at all, I need you to do it now. So the first thing he does, he asks God to consider his case, to look upon my circumstances. He's almost it's like he's imagining, if God only knew what was going on, he would act. Okay? So it's almost like in response to his complaint, God, if you have been ignoring me, please look my direction now so you can see what's happening. Please look now. Please consider what in the world is going on. And then comes his request for God to hear him, to respond to his cry, or I'm desperate. Now is the time to do something. And then he makes this interesting request. He says, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Now, literally, to enlighten the eyes means to shine a light in them. I guarantee that's not what David is asking. Okay, not to literally shine a light in his eyes. Yeah. Uh, David believes that death is what is imminent. Okay? And if the Lord doesn't intervene, it will be certain. So to enlighten his eyes is, of course, it's a figure of speech. I think, I'm pretty sure that it means to restore or to revive. Okay? Ezra seems to use it in Ezra 9.8. I'll look at that. And mind you, there are figures of, Hebrew figures of speech and idioms that we, we don't understand. Uh, we use a lot of things in common everyday language that if you have friends from foreign countries and you use those figures of speech, they hear you literally and you can see their wheels turning and they're trying to figure out what you mean. Because if you mean something literally, it would be very bizarre or cruel even. Um, I, I've told you the story when uh, I told Pastor Marcos when he was here, he kept leaving my door open. And I said, Marcos, were you born in a barn? And he said, well, Jesus was. But he didn't understand. Shut the door. You know, catch on, would you? Uh, we used tons of figures of speech. In fact, if you were conscious of all the figures of speech that you used throughout the day, you could quantify them in the hundreds. We just used them so frequently, so frequently. And so the, the Hebrews did as well, and we don't use them in our culture, so we have to wrestle with them. If you want to read a fun book, that is just a brilliant use of, of British figures of speech. It's called Plowman's Talk. I think, Carl, you gave me that book from Charles Spurgeon. And the book is riotous, but it's him just talking about his view on th things in life. And if you know Charles Spurgeon, he had some opinions. 
but he expresses his opinions in a very humorous way through multitudes of figures of speech, and some of them are just hilarious. So plowmen's talk. So anyway, Ezra says this. He says, and now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. I read both passages just for some more context. So, you know, Ezra has brought in the captives back from Babylon, a remnant so far. And he uses that figure of speech here. He says that our God, uh, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival and our bondage. So, of course, Ezra did not mean literally to shine a light in their eyes. But because of what God did, they were revived. They were given the opportunity to live. It was like God had resurrected them out of the land of Babylon. Had he not? Had he not? And you notice there how Ezra, in hindsight, is looking back on God's faithfulness through some wicked and terrible times in Babylon. Yeah. He has extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive, to allow us to repair, to rebuild this place of worship. Well, David, I think in the psalm here, he feels almost as good as dead, almost as good as dead, and he wanted God to revive him. Now, it could also be that uh, to enlighten the eyes is the way that your countenance changes after you find relief. You get it? When finally there's deliverance, you, your countenance completely changes from somber, from anxiety and all that, to cheerfulness, to victory. So he could also be uh, referring to that. I've read a few Hebrew scholars on it. Nobody knows exactly, um, but those are our, our best guesses on that. Verse 4, he's saying, Do this, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Now, if David is prevailed against, he's dead. Okay, he will be killed. And if David wasn't referring to Saul, but to some foreign king, now they might actually spare David. But why would a foreign king spare a king like David? There is no greater trophy than all of the Middle East when it comes to kings. And so the only reason that they would spare a king like David is to make him their slave okay, and to shame him. And what do you think David would prefer? Just kill me. Just kill me. So David simply prays that God would spare his life, and then he immediately turns to praise. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, the contrast from verse 1 and 2 to verse 5 and 6 is huge, isn't it? Lord, you're not even there. You hide your face from me. You've complete, are you going to forget me forever? to, Lord, I, I trust you. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to worship you. It's like David has come to see beyond the truth of his circumstances and is suffering to a greater truth. His circumstances are true. His feelings are real. But now he's seeing beyond that to the greater truth of God's goodness, his mercy, and his enduring faithfulness. It's almost as if he's looking in hindsight, 
to the situation, even though it's still going on. But David has shaken himself free of this, you know, this tunnel vision of just focusing on himself and his circumstance that he's, he's, he's able to look to God. He's saying God is trustworthy. He is able to save. He's worthy to praise. His mercy does endure forever, as I have written over and over and over and over again in other places. Not me, but David. Okay. His bounty has rescued me. He's always been faithful. Now he's saying, I will not be moved. I will not be overcome, no matter how hard things get. So is David, at this point, denying reality? Or is he just recognizing different degrees of reality? He's looking to a greater reality. Circumstances are still the same, but God has lifted him out of disparity, and now he's at rest. But you guys, the polar opposite extremes from the beginning of the psalm to the end, I think only the Holy Spirit can account for that. Now, I have an experience, not my own, but a friend, um, pastor friend of mine in Oregon. He had a similar experience like this uh, late last year uh, because of the governor's mandates, the lockdowns. And I was sitting in a meeting with him, and he was just explaining how because of the, the lockdowns, because of the, the mandates and things, all the restrictions, they didn't close their church. They stayed open. Uh, I don't know if I shared this with you or not in part, but he had the Satanists out there protesting. He had other churches in, in the community protesting. The churches in the area there, which is a large area, they wrote a letter against him and sent it to the governor. They were talking about him all over the city. They were pressuring him. The health department was threatening him. It was lawsuits. It was all kinds of stuff. And he was not sleeping. He was losing tons of weight. He was just, he, he, could, he couldn't concentrate. He was so messed up. And he said, one night, the, the Lord rebuked him and said, what are you doing? You serve the Lord God. Do not care about what any of those people say or think. And he said, he snapped out of it instantly. He slept like a baby. And he, he talks about now about, he says, it's just so fun now to be in ministry, <laughs> you know, but he's completely relieved. All of his anxiety is gone, and the Lord has just recalibrated him and fixed his attitude, and he's not worried about a thing. He says, I'm just serving the Lord, doing what the Lord says, and the, you know, the, the voices are still out there, and uh, so it's really sweet that God, when we come to him with the right heart and the right way, he can, he can change us even though the circumstances continue to be what they are. Amen? Yeah. So I think David's example should be followed when we face trials. We, we need to go to the Lord. Okay? We need to tell him about our pain, our frustrations. We need to be honest about how we feel. Uh, we should bring our petitions before him, and then we should be intentional to praise him in spite of everything else. And I believe that's when the change begins. And... Um, it's a regular occurrence in the Psalms that we see that. And if, if, I, if, if I know the Holy Spirit as well as I think I do, I think he's just providing us with protocol. When times get hard, here's what you do. Okay. All right, let's, let's go ahead and pray. And uh, if anybody needs prayer afterwards, I would love to spend some time in prayer with you. So go ahead and stand up and we'll, we'll do this. I'm going to get you out a little early tonight. Nobody's booing.
Well, Lord, I think it's true as far as some of the, the current circumstances that we have, they're kind of new to Western society, certainly not new to other societies. But Lord, we're no stranger to suffering and death and, and illness and, and pain. But Lord, some of us may be strangers to your grace uh, when those things fall upon us. We may have never known that there's a, a place to go where there's, there's relief that is promised and can be experienced. And, and so, Lord, I, I pray for us as a church that, that we would know, that we would practice that, we would provide an example of it. And Lord, if there are people here tonight, and, and I do know people that are, they just don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. And Lord, now is the time for them to, to go to you and just pour their hearts out to you. So Lord, you might just recalibrate them and help align their focus where it ought to be, and that, Lord, that they would trust you. And Lord, for those people, we do pray that you would provide for them, that you would see them through this time. And Lord, that for the sake of the church, they would do it like champs because of your grace, as they trust you. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us. Um, my boss isn't putting any mandates on me, and, and it's true for other people in our church, and I pray that we would be ready to come alongside, to support, and uh, to help people. So through all this, we do pray that the body would behave as you designed it. Lord, so thank you. Oh, Lord, we love you, and we do trust you. See us through this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.